that there are a lot of problems with our legal system. We know this. And these are problems that are caused by humans. But when we try to throw technology at our human problems without actually solving the problems themselves, then we just reproduce these problems, especially with artificial intelligence. And if the systems are meant to self-replicate, and if they decide to then replicate in different ways than we imagine, I don't even think we've begun to understand the potential negative unintended consequences of, of what we're doing. So I think we need to pay attention now before things really get out of hand. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the topic. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app. And we'll keep sharing amazing conversations like the one we have for today. I'm your host, Dan Turchin, CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. I'm also an investor in and advisor to more than 30 AI-first companies, and as you know, a firm believer in the power of technology to make humans better. We learn from AI thought leaders weekly on this show, and of course, the added bonus is you get one AI fun fact each week. Today's fun fact, Benson Marira writes this week in Cryptopolitan about human-robot teams as an ethical alternative to AI replacement of jobs. In it, Benson argues for mixed autonomy systems in which humans and bots collaborate and, in his words, capitalize on the distinctive characteristics of each other. According to Benson, one of the prevailing concerns surrounding AI is the notion of replacement, where automated machines are perceived as poised to replace human workers entirely. This, what he calls replacement myth, often overshadows the potential benefits of AI, such as increased efficiency and improved profit margins. Now, the concept of mixed autonomy certainly isn't new, and it's full of ethical issues, yet it's a topic worth exploring because it's certainly more credible than the absurd idea that we've addressed frequently that bots are out to take human jobs. As always, we'll link to the full article in today's show notes. Now, shifting to this week's conversation, Juliet Powell and Art Kleiner are two of the most respected journalists, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders in the future of workspace. Juliet's a popular speaker about topics related to ethical AI who has been featured on Bloomberg, BBC, NBC, and CNN, among others. Art Kleiner is an editor, writer, and commentator on topics related to neuroscience and leadership. He was formerly a managing director at PwC, the editor-in-chief of Strategy Plus Business, and is currently a faculty member at NYU. Together, Juliet and Art recently published The AI Dilemma, Seven Principles for Responsible Technology. I could go on for days and not share their entire amazing bios. I will, however, share for AI and the Future of Work aficionados that this is only our fourth multi-guest episode in more than 225. And without further ado, Juliet Nart, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Juliet, let's get started with you. Share a bit more about your background and how you got into this space. Well, thanks so much for having me, Dan. I'm very excited to spend a little bit of time with you. Hopefully we can pick each other's brain. I think that's really how I got into the space. I started asking a bunch of questions. Engineers, you know, would look at me at first and go, why do you want to know this? Because I'm curious. Well, I guess there's no harm in telling you this and telling you that. And I do the same thing when I was invited into boardrooms asking just way too many questions. 
And eventually I was asked to become a TED mentor and my mentee, Eric Berlow, who's a phenomenal data scientist among many other things. He brought me into an incredible project with Intel Labs. This was back in 2012. We were mapping the personal data ecosystem on a global level. And the idea was to figure out how we could maximize the opportunity of personal data for the everyday person. Out of that research, did a lot of work with you know, the World Economic Forum and then came back to the United States and really focused in on getting a degree. I wanted to understand, having worked in technology for a very long time, how our technologies are impacting society, because we're talking about socio-technical systems, right? We shape our technology, our technology shapes us in turn. And what are the longer term effects of all of that? I ended up writing a dissertation, but everybody, including my advisors, said, we're boring. Why would you spend so much time focusing on this? It was on the limits and possibilities of self-regulation in artificial intelligence. And on that, of course, I got a piece of paper that I could put on the wall, but I, I really wanted to see if there was any value for, again, people out there. And so I showed it to Art, and Art and I had collaborated in the past at Strategy and Business. And he said, gosh, I think you have a book. And so I invited him to write it with me. And I'm so happy that I did. Art brought in very different sensibilities, very different way of looking at the world of technology, of corporate life. And so I think it's a better book for it. And um, I'm probably a better person for having worked with Art. Art, same question to you. Well, same here. Working on uh, what became the AI dilemma was, you know, an eye-opening experience for me in many, many ways, including the value of a really intensive collaboration. I had first been exposed to AI and the concepts when I was running the personal computer part of the Whole Earth Catalog a number of years ago. And then I got involved in management and organizational learning and then went on to edit a management magazine. And Juliet, when you, you know, sort of invited me back, it was so obvious that this was a book that was needed because many of the decisions made by AI about AI, about introducing, you know, offerings, products, services are made in the technological space. And yet the, you know, the, the logics that we talk about in the book of, you know, the business logic and the government logic, the, you know, the people who shape the way it will be used, those decisions are often hidden. And we wanted to write a book that would bring together those two perspectives, the engineering perspective, and the social justice activist perspective and make sense of them in context with each other because they all shape where the future is going. Juliet, we, we talk about various forms of AI dilemmas every week on this podcast. Two of you are experts. I, I'd love to know something that you learned in the course of doing research for the book, maybe that didn't end up getting published, something that got left on the cutting room floor that surprised you. When I started having conversations with people within big tech about this calculus of intentional risk, so why is it that you know, a company decides to launch as opposed to wait. There, there are many internal factors around that. And I was very curious to find out how this calculate, this calculus actually played out in the face of competition, in the face of, you know, potential regulation coming down the pipeline. Uh, this idea that, you know, it's the wild west and it's time to make money now before, you know, either our competition comes in or that regulation comes in. So all of those different tensions were really, really interesting to me from both an organizational perspective as well as from a technological perspective. But the thing that is not in the book at all and that um, I am keenly 
definitely aware of is generative AI and specifically, so we do touch upon generative AI, but we don't talk about self-awareness. We don't talk about the day that's coming down the pipeline very, very quickly, probably within, you know, 2024, 2025, when an LLM will know that it's an LLM. And at that point, that's a complete game changer. So we've already seen the step change with, you know, these technologies now in the hands of the every person and that it hasn't even been a year, right? That happened last November with OpenAI. It has been exactly six months since the grandfathers of artificial intelligence and a bunch of other practitioners around the world jumped in and said, hey, we need to take a pause on, you know, the, the research around advanced artificial intelligence specifically because of this and so many other factors. And we didn't pause, of course, we accelerated. So again, this idea of self-awareness of these systems and their ability to manipulate us, I think is really important. And it's something that I think we need to talk more about, not necessarily to frighten people, but for our own awareness. If we are to work with these systems hand in hand, in some cases, there are collaborators or co-creators. In other cases, there are competition. And in yet other cases, there are bosses. Anyway, there's a lot to unpack there, but these are the things that I think about. Art, just this past week, an engineer at OpenAI supposedly leaked that they claim the family of ChatGPT models has achieved AGI, artificial general intelligence, where most would say that represents sentience. To Juliet's point, you know, most would agree today what we have is not sentient, uh, but there are concerns when we talk about AI dilemmas about what, what could happen if AIs became sentient. What's your perspective? Is that the right framework to use? It, you know, are, are we right on the cusp of it? Is it decades out? What do you think? Well, I think a big part of it is how people interact with the systems. The EU AI Act says that it's okay to have a conversation between a chatbot and a person as long as the chatbot identifies itself as a device rather than as a human being. We've already had, you know, the Turing test and other tests of sentience that depend on can others perceive this as equivalent to a person? When we talk about sentience, we're talking about can the device itself, the machine, perceive it to be autonomous? Can it perceive its context as making decisions on its own behalf? I don't know what the test will be to prove that that happens. When, you know, that will happen sooner or later. When that happens, I don't know to what extent it will still regard it, it being one of many AI devices will still regard its purpose as self-generated versus generated by the people who created it. What would it take for the kind of true self-generating sentience to happen? Would it just evolve on its own? Or did somebody have to decide to do that? I think that question is still unresolved. And I think that's still an uncertainty. Yeah, Julia, we, we recently had a great guest in the podcast named Dr. Meredith Broussard, who is a researcher and, and a professor at NYU, like Art is, and she writes about algorithmic accountability. And she gives this great example in the book that predates LLMs. She talks about the racist so soap dispenser. And so when we talk about biased decision-making by AI, we talk about it like it's a new thing. And I would argue, like you probably would as well, having experienced it, that uh, it's not new. And, you know, LLMs 
are perfectly designed to replicate human bias, but that human bias has existed for a long time before we encoded it in, in the form of algorithms and data. Um, you know, what's your sense of what, what's different now about this conversation that we're having about the ethics and you know, some of the dilemmas in AI, even though you know, I think we'd all argue that a lot of those latent factors have existed in society for a long time. I think part of the issue is that the, the system is just reproducing those negative biases. And, you know, again, for the most part, we don't have access to what's going on inside the closed box. So we don't know to what extent we're reproducing a lot of those negative biases. But to your point about the soap dispensers, I remember the first time I ever even encountered a, a dispenser, which is an airport in Texas, and I see all these women washing their hands without a problem. And I'm trying. I felt so stupid. I just, I didn't understand what was going on. This was, gosh, probably, you know, around the year 2000. And I was just, I, I just didn't get it. And I'd try the same ones that the other ones were, were using and, and that wouldn't work. And uh, to, to, uh, I, I guess a closer point today, I'm still flummoxed when my passport image won't scan at the airport or going through customs. I am, you know, constantly kind of reminded of being different, even though I feel very much like a citizen of the world. I, I feel incredibly privileged, obviously, to have grown up and educated in a G8 country where we have access to so much uh, resources and, and, you know, just like you, you're in the heart of Silicon Valley, you're in an ecosystem that thrives on not just innovation, but also having others like you, where you can have these intercurrent, these interconnections, and you never know what's going to develop. But when the system doesn't work for you in the same way that it works for other people, it can be very, very challenging. So yeah, the idea of reproducing these things, negative biases, for example, algorithmic sentencing, right? That there are a lot of problems with our legal system. We know this. And these are problems that are caused by humans. But when we try to throw technology at our human problems without actually solving the problems themselves, then we just reproduce these problems, especially with artificial intelligence. And if the systems are meant to self-replicate, and if they decide to then replicate in different ways than we imagined, I don't even think we've begun to understand the potential negative unintended consequences of, of what we're doing. So I think we need to pay attention now before things really get out of hand. Juliet, as a privileged, middle-aged white guy, it gives me the chill. I literally get the chills hearing you talk about that. You know, just how easy it is for people that look like Art or I to navigate the world. And until we talk to people like you and hear these stories and read Dr. Broussard's book, it's it's just very easy to be blissfully ignorant. But the weird part is I wasn't even aware. I'm not even aware when I'm just trying to do my little thing. It's only when you turn to the next person and like, oh, okay. So it's this, it's, you know, we're constantly comparing ourselves to others. If I'm just in my little bubble, I'm fine. But that's not really how I want to live, the, you know, my life. Or if we're being cynical, um, we could easily say a lot of the people that are writing the algorithms that are encoding these biases maybe look more like you and I than, than they often would look like Julia. But if I'm being an optimist, then I say maybe through conversations like this, and of course through your book, we can raise awareness and maybe you know get to a point where we don't have to encode those biases and, and, and just be hyper aware of, of these decisions. Where on that spectrum is art? 
Well, first of all, it's not just the people who are designing the models. It's all the people from whom the data is gathered, you know, and the instructions given and the scope and the availability of data, of personal data and of photographic data, and whether that in itself is representative of the range of people. So there's a whole level at which it's not just an individual set of decision makers being careless or, you know, having a negative bias themselves. It's a broad-based series of collective cultural and systemic habits that have led us to this point. So then you have to ask things like, okay, what does it take for a large group of broad-based systemic <laughs> cultural habits to change? And you can get very optimistic because you can say things like, the fact that AI exists means we're having this conversation. Whereas if it weren't happening, if, if AI didn't exist, maybe we wouldn't be talking about the fact that all of these biases are, you know, uh, influencing behavior in the first place. Or maybe you and I wouldn't, you know, and because of the background we have and the way we look and where we came from, etc. But now, decision makers are aware of it. If you want to stay cynical, you would say many times businesses have become aware of their responsibility and you get things like ESG. So then you have to say, what does it take to move beyond lip service? Part of the answer to that is psychological. And then you get into, can a company require people to have psychological growth for the sake of its, you know, of its management of risk? And some of it is institutional and some of it is legal and some of it is incentives. And, you know, honestly, um, it's going to take, it's kind of like uh, the energy transition. It's going to take all forms of new forms of energy. Well, this is going to take all forms of new forms of self-awareness. We're not going to pick and choose one. Some of them are going to be AI enhanced. Some of them are going to come down to people's internal practice, which is why that's become a big deal. Silicon Valley and other tech oriented circles. And some of it's going to come down to, you know, it's embarrassing now. If you want to talk about, you know, hurting children during childhood, you can't really talk about that and not being embarrassed. But it wasn't, you know, 50 years ago that was, you know, spare the rod and spoil the child was, you know, people could talk about that. So maybe there's some movement of the Overton window towards something better, or maybe it'll turn out to not work. One thing I think is really important is for both individuals and organizations, both on the corporate side and on the governmental side to say, what is it that you're not willing to do to make a buck? And to say it internally and to say it publicly so that you can be held accountable to that. And no matter what decisions that you're making, going back to that statement of what you are not willing to do. And I think that when employees ask themselves that question, and that it aligns with what their organization is saying, that's a really great fit. But if you're doing things that you don't believe in, that you personally are not willing to cross the line on, but that's part of your job, that's a misalignment. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing so many shifts in employment. Julia, based on that comment, I'd say you're on the more cynical side of the scale. No, I don't think I'm cynical at all. I've in fact, most of my very, very close friends are right there with you in Silicon Valley. No, I, I actually am optimistic because I know a lot of the key players in there. And I, 
I know them as human beings. I don't just know them as engineers. I don't just know them as, you know, leaders of organizations. I know them as humans and I believe in them as humans. And as a result, I'm far more optimistic than if I didn't know any at all. You reference in your research what we've talked about in the past in this program, the trolley problem, which was kind of commercialized in the form of the moral machine. Um, I would love for our audience to maybe know, share what it is first, and then maybe how you synthesize some of the results into your research and even into the book. Sure. Well, the moral machine experiment uh, came out of MIT in 2018. And it became a huge movement because they were smart enough to put it online. And then gamers started to do the moral machine experiment on their own and shared it with their millions of, of viewers and followers and supporters. And as a result, there was this huge meme and it got a whole lot of press coverage. Um, I think over 23 million responses went into the collection of data around it. I think it was something like 233 different countries. And ultimately, I think the thing that really struck me is that, you know, we, we assume, I think by default, that our moral compass, whatever we believe in is kind of universal, that it makes sense for most people on the planet. And when you look at the results of the moral machine experiment, it's the complete opposite. We can't agree. We can't agree whether we should you know, save the lives of older people versus younger people, whether it should be, you know, people that are more fit, that are less fit, people that are more law-abiding or less abiding. And that's because we have different contexts, different cultures, and that's a good thing on the planet. But at the same time, if we're asking our, our self-driving cars and other machines to far, follow a moral compass or make moral decisions as in terms of life or death, that's where it becomes far more complicated to try to code something that's going to work all over the world. And I know, Art, you you know more about uh, Philippe Foote than I do, so I'll, I'll leave you with the trolley problem. Well, the trolley problem is simply you can't help but hurt, hurt someone. You know, a trolley moving down a hill or a uh, self-driving car about to hit an intersection it loses its brakes. You have to know in advance, you know, are you going to... Uh, strike the older person or the younger person, the woman or the man, the fit person or the sedentary person. And you have to kind of decide that in ahead of time if you're programming a you know decision-making model because it's not going to be able to calculate. So you kind of have to choose in advance. Um, and the, the experiment takes the, the, the person who logs in, it takes them through 13 choices. And that's where the you know, the various uh, statistics that you cited, Juliet, and the, that's where the awareness that we really don't agree comes from, because we don't agree in advance. Mm -hmm. After you do those 13 choices, it then asks you a couple of questions about your own attitudes about AI. And it asks you to start with, do you think real automakers will take this experiment, you know, or others like it into account when they actually program? self-driving cars and i know automakers i've worked with a number of auto companies i've done a lot of writing about the auto industry no they are not going to take this into account they're barely taking into account what the person in the next office thinks when they figure out how to you know calculate the weight of the chassis they are overwhelmed with what they have to do immediately so the decisions are going to be made as so many company decisions are on a kind of local basis 
with an eye on, you know, the core group in that particular office or that particular company, what they are going to think. And they're going to be making the decisions based on shareholder value, but also on what the people around them think, you know, the regulators and the people they consider important. It's sort of, it's sort of who we consider important all the way down. And so are you the, saying that people like me are not important? What are you saying, Art? I'm saying people that we consider important when making a decision. Yes. Are chosen often unconsciously. And part of the process we've been talking about with creative friction is can you set up a system where people choose who they're considered to be important at the beginning and make that a conscious choice, a choice with intention? And then it becomes a choice about what risks are we willing to take? Because we're not willing, by nature, we won't risk hurting people who we consider to be important. And as human beings, we're all too prone to forgetting about the rest. You know what I see as the real problem, the real moral dilemma, is that everybody throughout the process of leading up to that automated decision has plausible deniability. Mm. The, right? The, the person writing the algorithm says, I'm just writing the algorithm. I just do what the data says. And the data has bias in it because it doesn't represent, you know, all of the, all the parameters, all walks of life, like, the, you know, the, the patterns that Juliet mentioned. So everybody is, you know, essentially, you know, culpable because we're all, in, including even us, you know, I, I mean, we, I'm a vendor of an AI technology. You know, we, we, we certainly try to practice the principles of responsible, uh, uh, responsible AI, but it, it is very much the fact that it's just pervasive across the technology that nobody really cares or knows or, or, you know, wants to be an expert in rooting out, you know, all of the underlying, uh, you know, symptoms that lead, lead to these biases. Is that That's something? Like an yeah. argument. I'm just doing my job. Yeah, but is that enough these days? Is that enough with where we are right now with the technology, Dan? And again, you're in the heart of it, so I'm asking you. Maybe your job needs to be that you take responsibility for the way or for the impact of the decisions that your technology makes. I would love to see an expanded sense of what it means. As one example, I've shared this on the show before, but I'm on the warpath to make higher ed or anywhere where you're getting a degree that qualifies you to write these algorithms or build these systems, you got to take an ethics course. I mean, just spend one day with Art and Juliet talking about, you know, the moral machine and the trolley problem, even one day. I think it should be a whole semester. But I think that would at least be a starting point toward helping technologists take responsibility. That is a part of their job. This is exactly why everyone at Columbia uh, University, where I was doing my degree, thought that my dissertation was boring because everybody in computer science, uh, when I was there, everybody at data science, everybody really thought that it was up to corporations to figure out what was ethical, what was responsible, that it wasn't going to be anybody outside of corporate. It certainly wasn't going to be government and it certainly wasn't going to be the next generation of students. And so you know, I appreciate what you're saying, but I think that it has to be more than just a day. And I think it has to be more than just a course. What I'd like to see is like um, mechanical engineers and electric engineers, they are held accountable by their own industry. They are certified and recertified on an ongoing basis. I'd love to see that from computer engineers, from systems engineers. 
I think these are basic things that we know how to do. I don't know why this would be different. Do you, Dan? Only because we're dealing with antiquated systems that, and gosh, I'm, I'm sounding quite cynical here, but, but you asked me a good question. And I feel like the system is designed to self-perpetuate. And I mean that that is a commentary on a lot of higher ed, and I know you're both part of part of higher ed. Feel free to push back, but unfortunately, I feel like a lot of these biases are part of the thinking that goes into everything required to replicate the higher ed machine. Tuition's free until I mean, there has to be some cataclysmic shifts have to take place. I think before this kind of what I'll call enlightened thinking becomes ingrained in how we how we how we train new professionals well if you look at the history of business education you know what we now call an mba started with an impulse like that and you know as juliet also teaches at nyu and we're teaching a course in the spring on responsible technology we've taught it once before and but you know maybe there should be an equivalent to executive ed where people from the four logics, you know, people from government and business decision makers and, you know, really well-intentioned engineers and social justice activists, all the people who are waking up in the middle of the night thinking, what is this technology doing, should come together for a semester and work on building their ability to manage these skills, which is part of it. Part of it is, okay, let's solve the problems. But a lot of it is... Let's build up the human capability to match this technological capability, you know, so that we understand each other's behavior. And that, you know, I think you're right, Juliet. I think that's not just a course. I think that is, you know, <laughs> we should put out the call for an endowment or something because it's, it's, I think it's going to, that kind of program is going to be needed. Well, Art, to your point about corporal punishment, like we can change society, you know, at a societal level, it takes time. But I think it doesn't mean that we uh, stop making it a priority. I think the fact that you're teaching that course and there's more more of this being integrated into traditional curricula, we are making progress. So I'll, you know, on a positive note, I think we are making progress. But you just inspired me. I think I have exactly, anyway, a new twist to be continued, Dan. <laughs> the two of you go off and design that course and then come back on another episode and either teach it or at least inspire our audience that it's very important. Oh, I would love to come back and share with you more. And and as long as it's like, you know, bilateral, you teach us something, we'll teach you something. And hopefully the community teaches us all something. There's one important topic before I can let you off the hot seat. I got to get your perspective on this. One of the topics that fascinates me and scares me is what is truth? And is there a new mm. definition of truth? in the age of pervasive AI. And the reason it concerns me is because, A, you know, we're entering what's going to be a caustic election season. And every day, everything you see, social media and elsewhere, we're going to have to question. And I, I don't know that I'm qualified to question what's true. And I'm afraid that, you know, I, I may be misled just like everyone else, and it could have massive consequences. Many would say, that, you know, AI could be the great equalizer. And, you know, there, certainly there's a big AI for good movement that mm -hmm. says there's always been falsehoods and, you know, there's always been, you know, questions about what's true. But now, you know, that I feel like the need to answer the question is, is going to be accelerated. Would love to get both of your perspectives on 
do we have to redefine truth in an era when everything is going to be influenced by AI? I feel like every few years uh, in this decade, we've been redefining truth. I, I just remember Colbert coming out with this truthiness and it's also right. It's not truth anymore. It's truthiness. What is it now? Fake news. Who knows? Um, I think it's, it's a, it's a very worthy question. And at the same time, I I'm thinking back to art. You and I had a conversation at our book launch on September 7th in Toronto, where after a very successful event where we had hundreds of people and they lined up and they wanted to talk to us, it was just wonderful, wonderful energy. But afterwards, we went to have dinner and Art was feeling particularly defeatist that, that day. He kept making statements about himself and somebody who's known him for 30 years happened to be there and asked him, Art, is that true? But Art was so caught up in his momentum just couldn't seem to calm down and stayed focused on all the things that were wrong without being able to answer that question. Is that true? And eventually I think it got to it art, but even within ourselves, that question of truth, I think is often compromised these days. So I don't know that it's going to be an easy situation for me. Again, I grew up doing the news. I literally was a reporter and I'd go out and then I'd have to present the news and, and back it up with multiple sources. And so for me, this idea of multiple sources isn't just about going back to the same echo chamber and taking 25 sources from the same place. It's about really doing a cross section of different points of view from different places in the world. Again, that creative friction in terms of facts. And then myself boiling it down very intentionally to try to find something that seems like it's right with all of the information, not just information from one particular group of people. And I think more of us will have to take the time to do this. Um, we did a fantastic interview uh, for the book on this notion of control. What is real control? Do we get real control through our devices? But ultimately, what we learned is real control means that you have to stop and think and weigh the pros and the cons and the you know, really do the cost benefit analysis of what you're thinking and what you're about to do, which takes time and energy. And it's exhausting if you really want to get to the truth of that particular matter. So to have to do this for everything now, that critical thinking piece is more important than ever. Art, what is truth? Well, I also have been a journalist. I have a degree actually in journalism from Berkeley. And most of my career was spent in magazines and books. But I still believe there's an objective truth out there. However, I no longer believe that it's possible to get there through pure diligence. One thing we know from studies of executives is that the higher you go in an organization, the more likely you are to base your truth on how you are responding emotionally, on your own inner trauma and turmoil, however that may be hidden or masked, or maybe you're well-adjusted and you've never had to hide or mask your trauma. But in any case, so that raises an interesting question, right, about tech companies and every company. In order to have really well-meaning decision-making, in order to have really effective decision-making and get to the kind of truth you're talking about, do we require people to go through a kind of inner work? And, you know, the light bulb has to want to change. You know, if it's required, it's not going to be effective. And on the other hand, if it's not required, it might not be chosen. And yet people may find themselves in a position that affects other people, especially when AI can 
be so powerful. So what do we now as a society require of our decision makers, which really means all of us? How much healing of the human is part and parcel of the spreading of the technology? I think we see lip service paid to that. I think it was a big theme in shows like Silicon Valley. And one of the things that made that show pretty meaningful kept coming up, right, in many different ways. And it's coming up now. And it's really easy to posture. And it's really easy to kind of paper over the turmoil with behavior that seems okay to people. But sooner or later, that behavior reflects and is going to be reflected in the AI systems. Those attitudes are going to reflect and be reflected in the AI systems. So we have to we have to not just make sense of it and be aware of it. We have to be willing to confront it. We, the decision makers together, including the three of us and many other people. And exactly what that means, that's both very personal and political and organizational all at the same time. So many conversations that we started and we're not going to have a chance to finish today. I do hope you'll take me up on the offer. Come back another time and let's continue this important conversation. That's a big yes. And it's public now, so you can all hold me to it. Yes. On the record, me Julia, too. Where, where can our audience learn more about, of course, the book, but the good work that you and Art are doing? Please just come and visit us. You can find us on LinkedIn. You can find us at kleinerpowell.com. And you can find me on my website, julietpowell.com. All roads kind of lead to us. So you can... <laughs> we always get excited when new people reach out to us because, again, I feel like we, we all learn together. That's really important. And we kicked off our AI advisory with the launch of the book. So a lot more to, to share and discuss. Well, there you have it. The great Juliet Nart. Go read the book, The AI Dilemma. Stay tuned for more conversations like this. And uh, heard it here first that we're going to have him back. That is all the time we have for this week on AI and the Future of Work. As always, I'm your host, Dan Turchin from People Rain, And of course, we're back next week with another or perhaps multiple fascinating guests. <laughs> <laughs>